0: So just so to kind of introduce you what we're doing, um, we're beginning a new series as we've concluded with Colossians and Philemon. Philemon. And in this new series, it's entitled, But God, But God. And um, these two words uh, brought together are one of the most powerful construction of words in the Bible. These are two words that change everything. Uh, In fact, the word but, whenever it's used, means there's an exception or a correction that adds new information to what we've already received. And there are several, uh, I think a total of 46 but-gods in the Bible. We won't be looking at all of them, but in this sermon series, we're going to be looking at some of the most prominent but-gods in the Bible. And these are two very important words because they indicate to us that there is something that is occurring or taking place, new information comes in, God intervenes, and there is, there is a shift, there is a change in the narrative. The two words, but God, indicate to us that God is not only transcendent, but that he is imminent, that God intervenes, that God is involved and interrupts the course of events, and he does so for his glory and the good of his people. It reminds us that God is sovereign and he's dynamic, and he intervenes in the natural order of things to bring about he, his will. James Montgomery Boyce said this if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. If you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform. Your life completely, and in today's text we have the first "but God" in the Bible. It's actually literally the first time that phrase is used that that's brought out in the Bible, um, and it's the first sermon of the series. It's a very dramatic "but God" because it, it it indicates to us that there's a major shift of what comes before those two words and what comes after those two words. Just to bring you up to speed, this is in the middle of the flood epic in the book of Genesis. And in the flood epic, going back to Genesis 6, if you turn back in your Bibles for a moment, look at verse 5, and the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things of the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so we see that in the beginning of this narrative, there's great wickedness on the face of the earth, there's great evil, there's great sin, and God decrees that he will judge the world with a flood. God commands Noah to build an ark And for 120 years, Noah builds that ark. He preaches a preacher of righteousness. And he gathers two of every animal on the face of the earth and brings them into the ark. And on the last day, God closes the hatch. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, there is rain upon the earth. The floodgates burst. Now, just to give you a little background, this is a historical event. This is not a poem. This is not allegory. This is an actual, real historical event. Uh, Christians believe that God flooded the world. Jesus believed that God flooded the world. And the Bible teaches that God flooded the world. This is this is actually a real uh, historical event. It's a reminder that God created the world and He could destroy it. The world was very different the way it existed prior to the flood. There was a vapor canopy that encompassed the earth, that kept the earth at a perfect temperature and perfect climate. That vapor canopy burst when the flood came forth. There was never rain on the earth. And it rained and brought forth uh, 40 days and 40 nights of downpours. And uh, not only that, but the subterranean aquifers under the earth burst forth. And water came out from the land. And the whole world was completely flooded. Only one family, and that was Noah and his wife and his children and their daughters, were saved. Everyone else outside of the ark was Completely destroyed, every creature, everything in the world was destroyed. Now, if you go with me to Noah, I mean Genesis chapter 7, verse 17, the flood continued forty days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Just think of that. The highest mountains, Mount Everest, was covered in water. Eventually the ark would land on Mount Aratak, which is 17,000 feet in modern-day Turkey. It was covered with water. It says in verse 30, And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures... It swarmed on the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. To help you do the math, that's five months. So 40 days plus five months. You have six months where Noah is stuck in this boat with all these animals, with his family. The world is completely flooded. You cannot see land. You cannot see anything. We've been getting a lot of rain, but this is nothing compared to what happened then. A couple of weeks ago, we had eight inches of rain in Shrub Oak, New York. Brother Naveen and Brother JP are here to testify that the floodwaters came into their own homes. And they experienced what a deluge can do of just eight inches. Imagine 40 days and 40 nights. That was before the but God. What we see here is the worst of human atrocities violence and evil on the earth, willful disobedience. We see destruction, we see death, we see judgment. Then we get to chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Almighty God, in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this passage before us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, that there are but gods in human history we thank you for the but gods in our life we thank you for the but gods in salvation and lord as we look to this passage we pray that you open our hearts and minds to behold wondrous things from your word instruct our souls teach us give us humble hearts to receive may we not be proud and stone-faced and stiff-necked we pray that you would strengthen the weary and the discouraged and that you would break the proud and the arrogant, and that you would be glorified, and may the gospel be declared through this sermon. Anoint me as your human vessel to speak forth your word. I am just a sinner saved by grace, and I thank you for the but God in my life. I thank you that one time I was on the way to sin and destruction, but you intervened, and you saved me, and you put me on the right path. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that in all of our lives. And now when we Now may we be instructed from your word. May you be glorified and your spirit prevail in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And I think that this is very instructive because understanding why this is stated is to put yourself in the mindset of Noah. Now let's just think of a few things. When there's a bad blizzard in the middle of winter and I'm stuck inside for about five days, I get cabin fever. Do any of you know what cabin fever is? You can be stuck in an environment for too long and you just want to get out and do something. You do not want to be contained anymore in your house. You do not want to be contained anymore in an enclosed environment. Six months on this arc. I want you to think of that. Six months on this arc. I am sure the animals and the fecal matter is increasing. The smell and the stench is increasing. There is no sign of life. There is no sign of hope. I'm sure even as much as Noah and his family love each other, they're at each other's throats at this point. There is a sense where, oh Lord, I am floating around in a wooden box on a world that's been completely destroyed and I haven't heard from you and I haven't seen you in six months. What was going through Noah's mind was that he was forgotten And then he was forsaken. I don't know about you, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a blizzard. It doesn't have to be a flood of catastrophic levels. But you may be surrounded by a storm in your life right now. And in a situation where you feel completely abandoned, forgotten, and forsaken. Every Christian will go through that at some time or another. You're, you think you're doing what's right. You serve God. You give it your role. You, you, you do what you think is right in obeying God. And it seems as if God has forgotten you. You're languishing. Imagine John the Baptist who preached and prepared the way for Messiah. And he's in prison languishing while Herod and Herodias are plotting his death. Where is God? Have you ever felt that way to know where is God in my life? I know I have. And in that context of Noah in a floating coffin on the planet that's just been completely destroyed, we read the passage, God remembered Noah. Now, I want you to stop and think there, because when we hear the phrase God remembered, that implies that God had forgotten Does God forget? Well, to understand what it means, God remembered, we have to look at what that passage means from God's perspective and what it means from Noah's perspective. From God's perspective, God never remembers anything because God has never forgotten anything. God does not forget. God does not make mistakes. God does not learn. God does not receive new information. God does not respond to something because he didn't foresee it coming. God doesn't have a bad memory. God doesn't fall asleep. He never sleeps and slumbers. God knows everything at, from every event in the world, from the beginning of creation to the end of creation. He knows everything concurrently, perfectly, and comprehensively. He is omniscient. He knows all. He knows everything he needs to know. Here is nothing new he needs to learn. He doesn't learn the future because he's ordained the future. And so in God's perspective, everything is going according to plan with the flood and with Noah's life. God hasn't forgotten anything. But from Noah's perspective, from Noah's perspective on the other hand, six months can seem like an oblivion. Six months... And we don't, I mean, just think how some of us felt in the immediate aftermath of COVID. When you saw New York City look like a ghost town and people were posting videos of of stores on Fifth Avenue being ransacked. There was a sense of, of just an ominous feeling like what's happening, the world around me is crumbling. Magnify that times a million to understand the despair and the, the sense of, hopelessness that Noah might have felt from Noah's perspective God had forgotten God knows let me just make this clear God knows where we're at we may feel like God has forgotten us we may feel forsaken but it is God who knows precisely where we are He put us where we are. God had Noah precisely in that boat at that time in that day. And we may think God has forgotten us, but he has mapped out everything in your life. God not only remembered Noah, but notice what it says. He remembered all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God had a purpose and plan for the animals too. Remember what Jesus said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground, apart from the will and purpose of God. Now, the Hebrew word for remember, by the way, is not like our English version. The Hebrew word for remember is used to demonstrate covenant fidelity. It signifies an action upon a previous commitment. And what it is saying is that God remembered his promise to Noah and was going to fulfill what he said, and that was to save Noah And his family. So, we're going to look at three ways that God remembers Noah in this passage. Three ways that God remembers Noah, and we're going to see more importantly what this means for Noah. Number one, God remembers Noah by reversing the flood and causing the waters to recede. Verse one says, And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. And the rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on Mount the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. We go now... From that six-month transition to the waters abating. And that takes time. Just as it took time for the waters to fill up, it takes time for the water to abate. But I want you to see the imagery here when it says that God made a wind to blow over the earth. The imagery cannot be mistaken. It's a strong allusion back to Genesis chapter 1-2. Because in Genesis chapter 1-2, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters of the deep. The, the the earth, when it was formless and void, was was simply waters and deep and oblivion and abyss. And the Holy Spirit hovered over the water and brought order to the chaos. And so the same Holy Spirit, and the word "spirit" in Hebrew is the very same word for wind, ruach. It's the same word in 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 Greek, uh, pneuma, which is both breath or wind or spirit. And so just as God's spirit was over the waters of the deep the day of creation, he is hovering over the watery abyss in this recreation. Because that's precisely what God is doing. He's recreating the world. Secondly, it's a strong allusion to the, to the Red Sea narrative. Remember, Moses is writing this under the inspiration of the spirit. He's already departed from Egypt. He's, he's in the, uh, wandering in Canaan as he's writing the, the, the book of Genesis. And clearly, it must have brought to mind when God sent a strong wind and parted the Red Sea so that he could deliver God's people. It shows us something very important. is two things. Number one, that God is sovereign over the weather. God is sovereign over the weather. You know, we, we, the weather is not some random, chaotic force of nature that God cannot control or that God has no interest in. God has a purpose for The weather, whether it's a hurricane, a tornado, whether it's a thunderstorm, whether it's a flood, whether it's a blizzard, whether it's a sunny day, whether it's a humid day, God is sovereign over the weather. And so there's no use complaining about the weather because God made it that way. If we complain about the weather, we're essentially complaining against God. I think I need to learn that myself. Listen to Psalm 135, 7. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth who makes lightning for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Or Jeremiah ten thirteen, when he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. God is sovereign over the weather. He is sovereign over the storm. And so that's something we need to consider. I remember several years ago when the Hurricane Katrina had hit New Orleans, I think it was Joe Scarborough who was commenting on the news that he was angry that Christian pastors were saying that God was sovereign over this weather. He says, what kind of God do you serve who sends a storm to kill people? Well, clearly Joe Scarborough hasn't read the Bible We don't understand the purposes of God, but we know he's in control. There is, a, there is both uh, an anxiety to that and there is both, uh, there is both a calmness to that. It, it, it's anxious because it reminds us you're not in control, right? You can't control the events in, in the world and in the life, there's that anxiety. But at the same time, that should bring calmness that thank God we're not in control and that he's in control because everything God does is for good. However, at last, the eight grueling months were, there was hope at last, the clouds broke, the sun was shining, the floods stopped, the waters were receding, no longer was the ark being tossed violently to and fro in this cosmic ocean, but it rested on the mountaintop until it was safe to deploy. Now, when we look at this, we have to see the role of the Holy Spirit as well. Holy Spirit's role in activity in salvation. Because in the same way that that the Holy Spirit was moving through the waters and God was moving the waters to bring about the ultimate uh, rescue of Noah, it reminds us in the same way that it is the Holy Spirit who moves about in our own life. In John chapter 3, if you turn in your Bibles, when we are taught, taught the new birth by Jesus as he teaches Nicodemus, uses the same metaphor when he talks about the wind uh, and how the Holy Spirit moves in terms of bringing about, regenerating life. And just as God is regenerating the life of the earth after it had been flooded and destroyed, he regenerates dead sinners and raises them from the dead. Notice what it says in John chapter 3, verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is the flesh. That which is born of the spirit, and spirit do not marvel that I said you must be born again. Notice the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit if you are born of the spirit it is like the wind blowing and you don't see where it's coming and going from it's invisible it's a force of nature but it's a reminder this is how the spirit operates and we don't know who the holy spirit is going to move upon and to create life and to regenerate It is the will and purpose and sovereignty of God that that declares and decrees this. It isn't man. It is not by the will of man or the will of the blood or the will of the flesh, but it is the will of God by which we are born again. But I tell you, there is something else that really comes out of this. It's a reminder that in the midst of the storms of life, and as the storm, not not only does the storm represent judgment, but it represents the chaos around us the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah that the, that the sea represents the chaos of wickedness of man. And in the same way, we are surrounded by chaos at times. It almost seems like whenever I turn on the news or look at social media, all I behold is chaos. The world is falling apart and crumbling. But brothers and sisters, in the midst of that chaos, we can rest that God remembers his people. God has not forsaken us. That God has a plan and purpose for us. And in the midst of the chaos, there is order. We have a God who is sovereign over the storm. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 25, when the, uh, verse through, through verse 27, when the storm was surrounding the disciples in the boat and Jesus was sleeping, they cried out, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you little faith? And he wrote as and rebuked the winds and the sea, and they were of great calm. We need to look to the Lord. Remember, it is he alone who could rebuke the winds and the waves and calm the storms in our lives. So often what we try to do is rescue ourselves or calm the wind and waves of our life on our own. You cannot calm the storms in your life. You cannot do that. The only thing you will do is make the storm worse. You create the storms. God calms the storms. There is a sense where we need to come with such desperation. God, save me. Deliver me. It is only when we come to that point of desperation that God will intervene. Secondly, God remembers Noah by giving him the sign of the dove. Genesis chapter 8 verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he made and sent forth a raven and it went up to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to him to the ark. And the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him any more. And so here we see once again that, that God remembers Noah. And he remembers him by giving him a very specific sign that he has not forgotten him. Now, Noah sends out two birds. First, he sends out a raven. A raven is an unclean animal in the Bible. It, it, it's an animal that I don't like them. I have a dead tree across the street from my house, and the ravens are there, and they're disgusting animals. They, they torment the hawks flying around. They're awful animals. If you ever see them, you just see that they're, they're evil. There's something dark about them. That's why you always see them in movies, which, witchcraft and everything. They're an unclean animal. Poor ravens, they have a bad reputation. On the other hand, the dove is a gentle animal and is a clean animal. The raven takes off, never comes back. Even though there's nowhere to land, the raven will just keep flying because the raven only cares about self. The the raven is a predator, is a vicious animal. The dove goes forth and the dove, dove is a gentle animal and she returns to Noah with a branch with olive leaves on it. It was a sign there was life on the earth once again. Now it's interesting because both the dove and the olive branch are universal symbols of peace. No matter what culture you're in, the dove and the olive branch symbolize peace. It symbolizes a a sense of reconciliation. And in that way, that was the sign that God was sending to Noah that there had been peace That justice had been satisfied, the judgment was complete, and that life was beginning to sprout on the earth again. This was a sign of God's care, it was a sign of God's purpose, and it was a sign of God's salvation to Noah. Not only is it a symbol of peace, but it is a symbol of the Spirit, the holy spirit descended upon jesus in the form of a dove in matthew 3:16 but i want us to see the again the implications here number 1 is that god in the midst of our chaos and troubles will send us signs he will give us signs and to to give us peace through the midst of the storms of life, And those signs can come in various ways. They can come through someone speaking to you at the right time in the right place. It may be that you're sitting in church and you hear a word from God through a sermon. It could be uh, the circumstances of life. However, we have to be careful that we don't look too much for signs. So often we can get caught up with, I'm waiting for a sign in life. Uh, for God to speak to me, I need to, to to have some kind of sign in order to move forward in life. Where we get like Gideon, we put the fleece out to test God. Now God doesn't always operate that way. He does at times to encourage our souls, but it is not the normative. It is not the It is not the prescriptive, it is the descriptive. There are times when God may do that to comfort and strengthen us, but it is not required that he do that all the time. And so therefore we have to be careful that we do not insist on seeking signs. But again, I see the bigger picture is pointing us to the gospel. And all of this we could see that salvation is, is pictured here. Uh, the ark being Christ and we're safe in him. And the, the storm of God's judgment has abated. The, the, the dove represents the Holy Spirit. We're told in Romans 5.1 that all those who have been justified in Christ have peace with God. Christ came to this world as the Prince of Peace to declare shalom, to declare reconciliation, to declare that through the cross we now have peace. The Spirit comes to us and dwells with us as a sign that God is now pleased to dwell with man. The judgment has been abated. It has been satisfied in Christ. Thirdly, God remembers Noah by speaking to him. In verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. I want you to stop for a second. Notice the specificity of the calendar days that, no, that Moses uses to describe the events and the unfolding of the flood. This demonstrates historicity. This is If this was allegory, if this was a poem the specificity of these dates would not have been included. It was his intention to indicate and point us to that this were real historical events. And in verse 15, And God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all the flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now, this has finally come to an end. The land is dried up. Noah opens the hatch. And by the way, if you go back to chapter 6, when Noah entered the ark, it was God who closed the hatch. Noah opens the hatch. He looks out everything's back to normal it would seem it's a very different world than the than the post-diluvian world but what we have to understand is that in this new world it is livable it is sustainable you can breathe you can get on land i am sure that noah must have been eager he probably couldn't wait to get off you know when a plane lands you're on a long flight and it finally touches what's everyone just can't wait to get off the plane right when you're in a tube flying thirty thousand feet for 18 hours and the plane finally touches down some of you make trans-pacific or transatlantic flights get me off of this thing right that must have been how noah must have felt but he did not make a move until god said so many times we're out of sync with god we're either behind the lord or we're jumping ahead of the lord instead of walking in lockstep with the spirit Noah wouldn't make a move until God spoke. Even though everything looked good, he would not make a move until God told him what to do. John Calvin comments this, All ought to indeed spontaneously consider how great must have been the fortitude of the man who after the incredible weariness of a whole year when the deluge had ceased, and new life had shine forth, does not yet move a foot out of his sepulchre without the command of God. There's something to learn from here from the from the Noah's faith and endurance. He did nothing except what God commanded him to do. When God commanded him to build the ark, he didn't question it. He didn't say why. He didn't he didn't reason or he did it. When God told him to get in the ark, he didn't say Oh, I don't know, This is not the right time. Maybe we should wait. What's the rush? He did it. When God put him in that boat, he kept him there. When it was time to depart, he did not step foot out of that boat until God said, you and your family and all the animals may leave. There are times when it may look like all the signs in our life are pointing us to do something but if God is not directing us, then we ought not to do it. Now again, I want to be careful because we're not, God's not going to speak to us audibly like he did to Noah. This is a time that before the Bible was recorded in its fullness. And God spoke to men audibly. This was a very dramatic event. This was a, an event before the Bible was even written. How does God speak to us? He speaks to us plainly through his word, the Bible. And so in life, when we are making decisions, we got to make sure that whatever decisions we're making are in line with the revealed will and purpose of God in the Bible. If something is a sin, we don't do it. If something is not a sin, we do it. But sometimes there are things that are not sinful that we ask, is it wise? Is it fruitful? Is it beneficial? Will it bring glory to the king? Will it be good for my family? Will it be good for me? Will it be good for the people around me? Or will it only serve my own selfish purposes? You see, God has spoken to us through the 66 books in the Bible, but sadly we don't want to read it. We want to go by feelings. I know more people, particularly from charismatic environments, that will rely on an impression or a feeling or a moving of the Spirit, but have never taken the time to study Scripture. I guarantee you, the more you know the Bible, the more you will know the will of God in your life. Decision making will become easier. You will not get ahead of the Spirit or behind the Spirit, but you'll be in lockstep with the Spirit because the Spirit is spoken through His Word. Turn with me to Psalm 1. I think Psalm 1 beautifully illustrates this principle. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight, notice his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now notice the result of when you meditate on God's law day and night. Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields his fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. When you are in the word of God, when it saturates your mind and you... Are governed by the word of God, you'll be like a tree planted by the streams of water. You will be fruitful, you will you will have purpose in your life, you will have fruit in your life, and you will see God's working in your life. Do not wait for a moving of the spirit, do not wait for an impression. I gotta tell you, that could be very deceiving. Why? Because the flesh can be deceiving, the flesh can can masquerade as a moving of the spirit emotions are very powerful and emotions could could make us think that God is somehow speaking to us when it's our flesh and it takes incredible discernment to know the difference I can't go by my feelings my heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things and so Noah knows that he does nothing except from the revealed will of God that is how we're to govern our lives. Now with all that said, how God remembered Noah, we see these three things. There is an important factor that we cannot ignore here. We see that God remembered Noah by abating the flood. He remembered Noah through a sign. He remembered Noah by speaking to him. But the, you know what the most important thing in here that I see is the response of Noah. He remembered God. Noah remembered God. Going back to Genesis chapter 8, in verse 20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creatures I've done, while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The beauty of this is that when the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark, he can go for a jog. He may, he may have a glass of wine. He likes wine. He may try to run a lap or uh, uh, feed the animals. No, the first thing he does is worship God. That's the first thing he does. He remembers God. He offers sacrifices to the Lord and it's significant because it demonstrates to us that through this harrowing experience he went through, the only thing he could think about was to offer sacrifices and honor God first and foremost. It demonstrated that he truly was a righteous man. Noah put God first. His life, his ambitions, his heart were all wrapped up in God. And that's why he was able to endure the trial. You see, when God is at the center of your being, you can endure anything. When God is not the center of your being, when he's not number one in your life, you will fall apart. The, the, your faith will, will fall and collapse in the day of calamity when it's not centered on Christ. As we read the conclusion of this flood epic, we can see why Noah was considered a righteous man. Not only did he remain steadfast in a wicked generation when there was evil upon the face of the earth, he stayed faithful in the ark for one year. But when he exited the ark, he demonstrated his righteousness in that he worshiped God. The truth of the matter is, is many times that we may feel God has abandoned us or God has forsaken us or God has forgotten us, but it's the exact opposite. The reason we feel that way is because we've forgotten God. We are the ones who have forgotten. We are the ones who have forsaken the Lord. And it is in those times that God shows grace even when we are faithless. How quickly we forget the grace of our lives. How quickly we forget the goodness of God when we go through trials and difficulties and and we try to fix it ourselves and we don't seek the one who could do it all. The one, who, the one who raises from the dead, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who abated the flood. In the end of the day, all of this, all of this is a portrait of the gospel. The ark is a type of Christ. And so is Noah a type of Christ. He offered a sacrifice which pleased God and turned away God's wrath. We have a greater sacrifice, the Son of God, who offered himself up for sinners. Not only that, but he propitiated and absorbed and satisfied the justice of God, as we saw in our confession. Therefore, all those who come to faith in Christ, we can rest in his finished work. God has spared us from the greater flood too, the flood of his judgment. We've been delivered a thousand deaths because of the work of Christ on Calvary. I want you to remember this. We are all on a collision course. With eternal calamity. And if you don't have Christ in your life. And you haven't been forgiven of your sin. The flood would be a gift. The flood would be a, 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 a drop in the bucket. Compared to an eternity in hell. But let this also be an encouragement to us. In the same way that Noah remembered God we have a visible way of remembering the work of Christ here today in the Lord's Supper. We are commanded to remember him through this communion table. It is a visible representation of the gospel, the body and blood of Christ, the sacrifice that was necessary for our forgiveness. And we will do that in a few moments. Let me conclude with a few parting remarks. Number one, despite man's wickedness, God elects to be gracious and overlook the sins of mankind, promising never again such a devastating event as long as the earth remains. Notice, God's assessment of the human race is no better after the flood than it was before the flood. In verse 21, it says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God's assessment of the human race is no better. Human beings are evil from the moment they're born. It's the, it's the most clearest declaration of total depravity that you can get in the earliest chapters of the Bible. There is no such thing as having a good heart or people with good intentions. All the intentions of man's heart is evil from his birth. That is until God gives you a new heart. So you're born again in spite of that God promises never to destroy the world in a flood again however God will destroy the world again next time by fire look in your Bibles in 2nd Peter chapter 3 In 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 1. This is now the second letter I am writing you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up by sincere mind, by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. This is speaking of the flood. It says in verse 7 but by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day the lord is not slow to fulfill his promises some of you count slowness but is patient toward you not willing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and its works that are done in it shall be exposed. This is the lesson here. Just as God judged the world once and people scoffed, and they made fun of Noah. And they said, okay, everything's the same. Nothing's changed. And suddenly the flood came and destroyed everything. The Lord says, so it will be in the days of Noah as it was in the days of Noah as it was in the days of Solomon. So it will be when the Son of Man returns. People will be marrying and giving in marriage. And then suddenly Christ will return and judgment will take place. And it will be far worse than anything anyone could ever imagine. So don't grow weary. Don't think that It's been thousands of years. And no, remember the prophecies of Christ. Remember the prophecies of scripture. This will come to pass. I tell you the truth as I look around me and I see the state of the world today, as I see the state of our nation, how can it be any other way but for God to burn it all to the ground? The corruption and the sin and the wickedness on the face of the earth today is unprecedented and I do believe we're in the days of Noah. And I believe judgment will come and it will come fierce and strong and if you are not in Christ, if you're not in the ark, you will be swept away. The hatch is open. The Lord saying, come to me. Jesus says, I am the door, come to me. All you who are weary in heaven, I will give you rest. Enter the ark. Enter Christ. Receive salvation. Find your rest and security in him. Don't be like those outside the ark who scoff. There is coming a day where God will judge. His patience will not last forever. And the good news is that for all those who are in Christ, the day will not overtake us the day will not overtake us look in your bibles once again into 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 it says this in verse 1 now concerning the times and seasons brothers you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night and while people are saying there's peace and security Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night of the darkness. All praise his name. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. For God, listen, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him, encourage one another, and build one another up just as you are doing. And I conclude my first, but God. But God remembered Noah. But God remembers his elect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this word. Thank you for the epic of Noah and the flood, which teaches us and instructs us of your sovereignty, your majesty, your holiness, your justice, Your salvation, your grace, and your covenant fidelity to your people. Oh, Lord, teach us, oh, Lord. Teach us to remember you in everything we do. May we never forget the great gift of salvation. May we never forget your goodness and grace. May we never forget your holiness and justice and wrath upon sinners may we tremble at the thought of sinning against you may we tremble and be fearful to take up anything that would or do anything that would provoke you to anger and wrath for we've been delivered from wrath oh lord we pray that you'd hear our words in jesus name amen